Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. The field of public health has always involved collecting and analyzing data, but when a worldwide pandemic hit suddenly, it was necessary to speed up these processes so as to make decisions and recommendations in real time. As the pandemic changed and shifted with vaccines and treatments, so did the need for public health data. In this episode, I talked to Emilia Burke-Garcia and Lucy Rabinowitz-Bailey of NORC at the University of Chicago, an independent research organization who conducted just such a study in real time to understand the pandemic's effect on mental health and coping strategies. We talk about the kind of data they used, the challenge of collecting it and processing it so quickly, how data changed throughout the pandemic, how they approached issues of bias in the data and privacy, and how AI figured into the equation. We also touch on some hot topics in the news, the proposed moratorium on generative AI research and its effect on public health research, as well as the effect of social media on teen mental health. Let's get to the interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Who's Your Data podcast. With me today, I have two guests. We have Amelia Burke garcia the Program Area Director, Digital Strategy and Outreach at NORC at the University of Chicago, and Lucy Rabinowitz-Bailey, a research scientist at NORC. Hi, ladies. How are you doing? Good morning, Gilad. We're well. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for joining. First and foremost, what is NORC and what do you do there? Sure. So officially, our name is NORC at the University of Chicago, uh, but we go by NORC. And NORC stands for National Opinion Research Center. But NORC is a nonprofit, nonpartisan, independent research organization that conducts research in a variety of areas on a variety of topics and for a mix of clients that include federal agencies, local and state government agencies and organizations, associations, foundations, and other types of clients. At its core, NORC is a survey research organization. That's what it, it started as and, and, and is a really big part of the work that we do here. But NORC's a really interesting um, organization comprised of a variety of talented researchers in a mix of areas. And we do work across a wide mix of topics. So we have a large health group. And we do research um, and work related to public health. Um, healthcare systems and uh, policies and structures. We have a group focused on education-related um, research. We do work on climate. We do work um, related to justice and civil rights. We also have work that's focused on equity research. We actually launched recently uh, the Center on Equity Research, and that center really focuses on the development of approaches and models and methods that are inclusive and equitable in order to ensure that the data that NORC produces on behalf of its clients is representative of the populations of study and inclusive of the right voices in order to help answer key research questions that our clients might have. Uh, we also have a fantastic area focused on health implementation science, which is really looking at sort of the implementation side, the translational side of research, right? How things in practice get done and, and what the impacts are. Um, and then we have an area that I'm very passionate about and that Lucy and I work on together a lot, which is health communication and communication science. And so this idea 
related to sort of this study of evidence-based uh, methods and approaches to communicating about health topics um, to, to a variety of audiences. Well, that's definitely a lot of topics that are covered at North. The study that I wanted to talk to you about um, has to do with, as you said, around public health and communication that happened during the pandemic. You uh, performed a study related to mental health and coping that you did in collaboration with the CDC. Can you talk a little bit about this work and what research you did related to this and, and what were the main findings? Yeah, sure. So as you, you know, all your listeners and you yourself can imagine, in the early parts of 2020, we were just starting to go into stay-at-home measures. Uh, the pandemic was sort of newly named. And, and so uh, CDC and the CDC Foundation um, had identified the, the risks for challenges to people's mental health, their ability to cope through that part of the pandemic. And they really wanted to put out a communication support initiative that would provide uh, messaging and, and resources that could enable people to take steps to cope and be resilient through, um, especially those early days of the pandemic. So CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the CDC Foundation approached NORC in the spring of 2020 to help them um, stand up, which would, would eventually become known as the How Right Now or Que Ora campaign. Que Ora is the sister Spanish camp version of the campaign. So we, along with our two partners on the project, Burness Communications and TMN Corp, worked together with CDC and the CDC Foundation to conduct rapid formative research around what people were experiencing in those early days, what kinds of challenges they were encountering as they uh, had to move into stay-at-home orders, couldn't see loved ones, uh, were worried about the virus and, and, and infection from the virus and sickness and possibly death from the virus as they were experiencing loss in their life, right? As, as loved ones that they knew were getting sick and or may have been, you know, may have died from the virus. And in addition to that, sort of the struggles financially and emotionally that the pandemic was causing. So people who were struggling to pay rent because their, their jobs had been, either their businesses had closed or had temporarily closed, worries around being able to put food on the table, uh, pay rent or mortgage. All of those things were kind of starting to come to light very quickly in those early days in the pandemic. And so we really helped CDC and the CDC Foundation to, to better understand what people were going through and um, what their needs were. And what emerged from those that uh, initial formative work uh, were a couple of things. We learned that people were struggling a lot, that they were had a lot of worries. They were going through a lot of different types of emotions, uh, worry about getting sick, worry about finances, worry about the future, loss from missing loved ones, from loved ones who had passed away, grief from some of this as well. So there were great needs during those early days. In addition to that, though, there was a really strong recognition that people needed to cope, that they needed to take steps to be resilient, to get through this time. And they really needed help to do that. And what they wanted from a communications campaign, like how right now, was, you know, really easy tips, tricks, steps that they could take, tools, resources that were low cost, low barrier to entry, not fluffy. They wanted actionable resources that they could really use in their life. So all of this came together in just a couple of months. Uh, we 
conducted uh, rapid and but robust formative research between May and July of 2020. The campaign officially launched on August 5th. What's notable, I think, is that this was not a mass media campaign. So we didn't use television ads or billboards or any real kind of mass media to promote the campaign. This campaign was developed through and with partners. And so partners were part of our formative research and they were our main dissemination strategy for most of the campaign. It was only really kind of later into 2020 when we did a little bit of social media ad buying and a little bit of uh, radio ad buying. Um, but we really leveraged trusted voices to get our messages out to the communities that we were seeking to support um, in those early days. One of the things that was interesting to me about this study is the fact that being the black swan event that the pandemic was, when it first hit, our understanding of it was zero. And as time went on, we adapted and we learned more. And so, you know, we changed behaviors and we evolved. And so I'm, I wondered if the way that the study was designed or the way that the data was collected or the communications were done change in any way as the pandemic wore on. And were there maybe learnings that you got early in the pandemic that led to those changes, the, uh, uh, adapting of the strategies as the pandemic wore on? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I think when we all set out to develop what eventually became known as How Right Now, no one thought that we would be in the pandemic for as long as we were, right? So even now with COVID still with us, although the pandemic has sort of been officially declared over, we have been dealing with the need to socially distance, the need to wear masks, the need to vaccinate um, for uh, a long time. And I don't know that that was ever really the intention, right? I think that there was this idea that we would provide coping support and resilience support for a period of time while people were in stay-at-home measures. And then hopefully the pandemic would wane and we would all get be able to sort of get back to some version of kind of normal. But as we saw the pandemic roll out, we saw that that wasn't really happening, right? That there were these waves of new variants, waves of being able to sort of reopen and re-enter society, but then also needing to kind of roll back a little bit as new variants created new worries, um, new cascades of, of infection. Um, and especially for those who were around um, or caretakers of people who were immune compromised, uh, people who were older or who had other health issues, um, really trying to take measures to, to be careful um, about spreading um, the virus. I think well, as we saw that happening, we realized that how right now was not gonna go away anytime soon. So what we had to do was sort of stay on top of what the needs were and what we did that through ongoing and iterative data collection. So while we did the formative between May and July of 2020, it didn't stop after July. We actually continued to collect data through a variety of methods as we had done to inform the development of the campaign. But this was really to sort of say, where does the campaign have to go next? So I had mentioned that we we did robust but rapid formative. And what that means is that we collected data across we did survey data collection. We looked at social media data. We looked at, we conducted fo online focus groups. We did, we talked to our partners and then our partners helped us conduct what we called listening sessions. And these were all virtually held, of course. We did a, a review of the literature and sort of the gray literature. So it was conducting a literature review and an environmental scan. All of these data kind of came together to 
help us understand what, what people were going through. We continued those methods as we moved forward. And so as we rolled into the fall of 2020, into the winter of 2020, especially as we sort of were looking towards the holiday season and knowing that this would be the first holiday season when people wouldn't be able to get together with their families, maybe somebody had passed. And so this would be the first holiday without that person at the table. This might be a holiday where it was it would be very hard financially for somebody to put food on the table or even think about buying holiday gifts, or maybe somebody was no longer in their home. So we knew that people were going to be struggling. There'd be a lot of additional stressors that would be you know, happening to people during this time. And so really, again, working with our partners to forecast what are you hearing from your communities? What are you hearing that they want to see and need? And so we were able to really continue to collect those data, understand the needs, and then deliver new messaging and new resources that were aimed at supporting people through that holiday season. And that is just sort of a theme of how right now um, overall is that it really didn't just sort of stand, get stood up, create a set of messages, and then it just rolled out as the same as it was a month prior or three months prior, it really was nimble and responsive to the environment as the environment shifted. The research itself, I think, also was really responsive to the environment. Um, and Lucy, I'm, uh, I'd like to turn it to you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks, Amelia, and thanks for having us. So the the research itself that Amelia was referring to uh, specifically for our survey, right? So we fielded a survey in May 2020 to get kind of a baseline in-time understanding of how people were feeling um, and dealing with um, the onset of COVID that was very new at the time. Um, and then we were lucky enough to be able to field a follow-up survey in May 2021 and in May 2022. And so what we what we did was we adjusted our survey slightly to reflect the changing conditions of the pandemic. For example, in May 2021, vaccines were just starting to be available to the sort of wider group of people beyond those priority populations um, at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. So we started asking questions about people's um, likelihood of getting vaccinated or how the availability of the vaccine maybe impacted their mental or emotional health or ability to you know, end a lockdown or social isolation period. And then we kind of adjusted those in 2022 to reflect, again, the new phase of vaccination that, we're in or that we were in at that time around getting booster shots and how people were feeling um, about that. So that's an example of how we've adapted our survey measures to reflect the, the, the times that we were in. Um, however, we really did try to keep our surveys pretty similar in structure, and we kind of just added items that people could select to, that were newly relevant for that time um, so that we could look at changes over time for things like uh, emotional health needs and coping and resilience mechanisms. And the final thing I'll say is, as Amelia said, we had a lot of awesome additional data sources and like outside of the survey. And so keeping our finger on the pulse through those data sources allowed us to kind of inform our survey approach and how we were asking about things and what we were asking based on other evidence. Very interesting. So, so let's talk for a minute about the data itself. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what kind of data you collected from the public and then are there any pros and cons to using this kind of data for such a study? Maybe were there any alternatives? As you mentioned, you had other data sources that you used to inform that. Yeah, so the public use data files that um, we have now that are available on our website and also in the ICPSR database are two waves of survey data. And so that um, that survey data was collected using NORC's Amerispeak panel, which is a nationally representative web panel. It's one of the most, the most scientifically rigorous uh, 
panel available in the U.S. market. And so that allows us to really be able to um, draw conclusions about a national picture of what people were feeling at a point in time. Our survey was administered using mostly closed-ended or structured responses, meaning that respondents chose from predetermined responses that were on a list or that we had sort of written and, and piloted although we always include other open-ended response options to allow for freeform text entry as needed. Um, and I'll talk about the pros and cons a little bit of this approach. Um, so the pros are really that it allows us to get a moment in time snapshot of the opinions and experiences of Americans um, that we're fairly confident represents a national picture or view of COVID and mental health at that time. This um, allowed us to draw conclusions about the prevalence of COVID-related experience and measures of mental health across the U.S. And another pro is that the fielding is relatively fast, so we can collect about, you know, a thousand responses in four days, whereas a mail survey or an interview um, approach might take, you know, three to four weeks minimum and usually longer than that. So because, as Amelia said, we were in a rapidly evolving um, setting, we really, that that speed and that ability to collect that information in a way that we could use it, you know, immediately after was really important. One potential con or drawback of that approach is that because they're structured responses, we may not be asking about everything that an individual could possibly be experiencing related to COVID and mental health. We tried to mitigate this by, you know, incorporating those findings from the qualitative data collection that we did with partner interviews and focus groups and social media inform the items in the survey. But um, there's always a chance that, you know, something's not an option that somebody would, you know, want to express to us or that they're more complex and nuanced um, experience beyond kind of the structured responses that we had on the survey. In terms of alternatives, it's, it's pretty tricky to find an alternative to a nationally representative survey of this type. I mean, we could have gone out and interviewed like a ton of people representing all these different audiences and experiences to get more qualitative, rich kind of that nuance that comes from a qualitative data source. But we needed to get it quickly and for it to inform the, the campaign development. And then also, you know, it takes a long time and it can be very expensive to do a ton of interviews that kind of create a similar um, snapshot. So our, our desire was really to quantify the experiences that people were having so that we could prioritize our campaign messages and materials to meet the most urgent mental health needs. And so that nationally representative survey was really important for us to be able to do that. I see. And I think that really speaks to, you know, ultimately, there's no perfect way to collect data. Um, there are going to be pros and cons to, to every method, but you choose the one that is the best suited for your purposes. And in this case, the agility and the speed. One of the things that interests me about any data set that we look at is the question of bias, the bias in the data and how we deal with it, especially in studies like this, right? So one question I have, for example, is this panel exposed to more to certain populations and less to others? Like, how do you count for, or how do you think about potential bias that is in the data set, meaning that certain populations might be more represented than others? Yeah, that's a great question. And we do a couple of methodological kind of statistical approaches to account for bias, and then also recruitment approaches for our panel. So I'll first talk about the ways that we account for respondent bias um, in a sample through statistical methods. So the first thing we do is we construct a sample of our web survey respondents based on demographic attributes like age, race, ethnicity, education um, to ensure the inclusion of all the diverse perspectives and make sure that that sample is as representative as possible to the population of the United States. And all that happens before we actually collect the data. It's really just the construction of the sample of people that we would be, you know, collecting data from. 
And um, then once the data is um, collected and the fielding is complete, we weight the data. That includes calculating and constructing weights that reflect the national census benchmarks balanced by gender, age, education, race, ethnicity, and region. We do a process called raking that is complex, but generally just know that it um, allows us to be pretty confident that the weighted data then reflects the demographics of the U.S. population. We have a lot of great weighting and statistical analysts who work really hard to make sure that the weights that they're constructing allow us to draw conclusions about the national profile of the respondents that we have. Um, we also adjust for screener non-response. So because we are a panel, uh, we de we're derived from a web panel, the participants have to take a screener and participate and agree to take that survey. So we, we adjust for um, you know, people who may not be responding in the panel, which decreases that non-response bias. Some bias remains because we're using a web-based panel survey, right? Like there may be you know, differences in people who are on the panel versus not. However, from a recruitment perspective, our Amerispeak um, team at NORC does a really great and intentional job of conducting outreach in person and over the phone to ensure that there is representation of people who may have digital or internet access barriers to kind of minimize the impact of that web-based survey bias. And then in terms of populations, you know, there's different representation of different populations on the panel. We try to increase representation from underrepresented groups. I know um, we have recruitment efforts to increase our Hispanic and Latino representation and Spanish speakers on the panel. We also have a separate effort to recruit youth and get kind of young adults and the youth perspective in there more because there may be an age bias in the panel. And for our survey specifically, for example, we uh, had an audience group of interests for one of our waves of the campaign. We really wanted to make sure that we had appropriate representation from American Indian and Alaska Native audiences since our campaign research showed that this group was really really in need of mental health support. And we wanted to make sure that we heard from them and were, were able to draw conclusions about their um, needs for emotional health and coping and resilience. And so we ended up oversampling that group, which means that we purposely went out and found and boosted our efforts to get a minimum number of respondents from that group so that we could draw conclusions about them. And then ultimately in the final weighting, the weights assigned, even though there was an oversample of that group, but the weights assigned for that data set reflect the overall representation as a proportion of the U.S. population. So we both were trying to amplify their voices, but then also be able to make it uh, a nationally representative data set. Okay, so let's talk about another topic that I think is very pertinent in this case, and that is privacy. So one thing that's special about the study is that you are making the actual underlying data used for the research available to the public. My question about this is, well, I have a couple of questions about this. First of all, what prompted the decision to, to do this? Is the standard to do with public health data and what you're hoping that it will get used for, but also as it pertains to privacy, especially with public health data, can you talk about how you thought about keeping this data private and secure and anonymous. Yeah, sure, Yad. So yeah, one of the exciting things that that I think how right now has has done um over the course of I think it's its life is that there have been a number of firsts for this campaign, right? So it really has been a model for rapid formative research to understand people's needs in an emergency situation. It's been a campaign that's been informed by data collection that has been collected all remotely because we couldn't get together with people in those early days of the pandemic. 
it's been evolved based on ongoing data collection, which oftentimes health communication campaigns can't do or don't have the resources for. Um, and so being able to inform its direction based on real-time data collection is, is really unique. It's been partnership-based, right? So not mass media-based. It's been through and with trusted voices. We're excited to announce that we've also made our data, our survey data in particular, uh, available for public use. And that is something that you just don't see a lot in the health communication campaign space. And I think it's notable because I think here at NORC, as well, just in general, I think within the research and survey research fields, you know, there is a commitment to data transparency and to share kind of what goes into developing something like How Right Now. I don't think uh, other campaigns have not shared their data intentionally. I think it's often just something where lots of data are collected, a campaign is the end goal and it's developed and it's launched. And then those data oftentimes don't ever see the light of day beyond what their primary use was for, which was to develop, to develop the thing, right? The campaign or the program. And I think what's really exciting is that as we started to think about all of the resources and time and effort that went into Develop How right now, we really wanted to maximize the value of what, what had been done and what and the data that had been collected. And so we thought that there was an opportunity to actually take the survey data to actually clean it up and make it ready, uh, available for public use, and then to share it with the world for researchers, for students, for program officers, for policymakers to be able to take and use and analyze in their own work to to either um, understand some of those trends, to make policy decisions or programmatic decisions, even as a record of what has happened as we think to the future and what could happen and the next emergency situation or the next virus or the next outbreak or pandemic that we go through. There may be value in documenting these data and understanding people's emotional um, health and well-being experiences and coping strategies so that we can be better prepared in the future. So the campaign, along with CDC and the CDC Foundation, we decided to take the data and make it available. And, and we wanted, you know, as part of this conversation to let your listeners know that that these data um, were now available. You can access them on nork.org. I can, I can speak about the, the privacy aspect of it because we definitely thought about that a lot in preparing these data files for public use, um, especially because we're asking people to Tell us about their emotional state and mental health. First, though, uh, NORC adheres to the American Association of Public Opinion Research, or APOR, Code of Professional Ethics and Practices in all of our survey research. We're a really active contributing member to this organization, and we always hold ourselves to the highest standards of ensuring ethical research principles across the research lifecycle, um, including when it comes to public use files. So our process is informed by those standards and um, conducted by really experienced teams who prepare data sets for public use on a regular basis, including for governmental clients like the National Immunization Survey for uh, CDC, for example. One really important step for ensuring privacy in public use files like this is conducting suppression analysis. Um, and this involves examining cross tabs or tables of all the variables in the data to ensure that there are no cell sizes with less than three respondents. That's generally our rule. We also carefully examine sensitive variables and their cross tabs to make sure we're not inadvertently putting someone at risk for disclosure of a sensitive variable or part of their identity. And then we suppress or remove variables or respondents if a concern is identified. So for example, for our campaign, 
one of our initial audiences of interest were um, people at risk of or experiencing violence. And so we asked people to report that on the survey. But in our suppression analysis and sensitivity analysis, we were advised that this was you know, a really sensitive variable that could potentially pose a risk to privacy and security if disclosed. So we ended up just removing that variable from the public data set altogether. We also made decisions about collapsing or condensing categories for variables to make sure that our cell sizes were robust enough to include in the data set. For example, we initially in our data collection had a larger seven category race ethnicity response variable. We ended up collapsing that down to four categories in the final data set because we knew that this would be an important variable for this topic, like Amelia mentioned, for future researchers interested in understanding racial and ethnic differences in coping and resilience or in experiences during COVID. Um, so we wanted to make sure it was in there, but we had to you know, collapse it down to fewer categories to be able to preserve it for the research without any you know, disclosure or privacy concerns. We went through this process twice because there are two data sets. There's the May 2021 and the May 2022 data. Um, and then uh, we, as part of that development of the suppression analysis and the collapsing of variables, we renamed the variables, developed a code book for each data set so that they could be easy to use and understand for an external audience. And even with the suppression and sensitivity analysis and the steps we took to make sure that we were limiting um, sensitive information and, and risk of disclosure, we still ended up with data sets with over 1,000 respondents each in each wave of the data, which is a pretty robust um, sample size and a good amount of data for researchers to use to investigate these topics. Um, so those steps are really important and they still lead to a product that we think is really important and usable for public health research. One last question that I have to ask, um, because it always comes back to AI, but with all the advancements in AI, ChatGPT and DALI, do you use or are you envisioning using any of these tools, any other AI tools, uh, being involved in public health research? Well, um, I could start by answering how we've used it on the How Right Now project research specifically. Um, so we actually use a natural language processing tool called QUID in our research, and NLP is an AI approach. Um, and this tool cr creates visual networks of news, blogs, and articles in the publicly available media space. And what that allows us to do is get a snapshot of like important themes in the news related to our topics of interest. And it really helps us supplement our research findings derived from published or peer-reviewed literature or any of the other data sources that Amelia mentioned in addition to the survey, the interviews, the focus groups. So the network created by the QUID machine learning process really helps us see connections to issues and topics that we may not have seen going into a regular search using you know, a traditional database of journal articles. And that really helps us understand, expand our understanding of the topic. And that is really critical during COVID, right? When things were constantly changing and the conversations in the news were really kind of directly informing and impacting people's emotional states um, in a way that we thought this was a really critical data set to tell this full story of COVID and emotional well-being. I would say as, as, a, as an organization, one of the big areas with AI, of course, that we're concerned with, but that's been, I think, documented quite well um, in the media is the issue of bias and the fact that there's always going to be these models are are developed by humans and they're trained on data that's collected by humans. And so there's inherently um, a bias to to them. And we've seen this reported in terms of uh, the release of Dolly, right? And, and the fact that you type in doctor and it spits out an image of a white man. And so we're, we're seeing 
how some of the biases are just very kind of on the nose in terms of what these these AI models are are producing. And so at NORC, we're really excited to be um, exploring um, the mitigation of such biases in the development of these models. And in particular, we've got a new project going on where we're working on the topic of, of vaccine misinformation, which disproportionately affects communities of color and other historically marginalized communities. So we are starting to work on that. We are early in the process, but we hope to have more insights later um, and throughout the course of this year in terms of how do we develop models that address these biases um, in the data and, and in fact can help us identify misinformation more effectively. Well, you're going to have to come back on the podcast to talk about those findings because that will be fascinating. Yeah, happy to. All right, it is time for Hot Topic. The first thing that I want to talk about is an opinion piece that I found in The Hill. It involves the whole urging of artificial intelligence labs to institute a six-month moratorium on AI research, given the growing concern around the uh, unintended consequences that people have been talking about. And it, there was a specific call to public health researchers because of concerns around poor model interpretability lack of regulation, data sharing, and of course, the broader privacy and ethical concerns that uh, um, incorporating bias into its algorithmic data structure, there was a call for public health officials to also do a similar moratorium and to look at the research that it's being done. And the reason that this caught my eyes, because it actually, their solution or their path forward actually, I think, resonates with what you have done in your research, because they claim that a good place to start is by expanding what counts as referenceable data in AI algorithms to incorporate things such as lived narratives, firsthand accounts from individuals or influencers and communities, local and cultural knowledge forms, community-driven data projects among underrepresented populations, which cannot necessarily be deduced down to predictive metrics by outside experts. So I wanted your take on this because it sounds like that you're kind of ahead of your time because that's kind of what you did with these uh, complementary data sources to the server. Yeah, I, I think it's it is the way that data collection to answer research questions should be done. I think you said it, Gilad, every method for data collection, every type of data has an inherent bias or limitation. That said, the multiple sources of data can help answer questions either better, right? So more robustly giving, you know, Lucy mentioned the, the value of looking at both quantitative and qualitative data together because the structure of survey questions can be somewhat limiting, right? In terms of being able to gather that full picture of what people are going through. By looking at quantitative and qualitative data together, you start to get a glimpse into um, more of the context or full story of, of how people are responding and what they might be going through. I would also argue that different types of data help answer different types of questions, right? So where we're trying to enumerate something, quantitative data is really useful. Where we're trying to gather 
a better or deeper or more robust picture of what's going on. Qualitative and or triangulated data can be really quite valuable. And I think it's important to recognize that NORC did a, a lit review about a year ago looking at the kinds of data that are used to support the development of and evaluation of health communication campaigns. And overwhelmingly, survey data is 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 used, and it is can really, quite frankly, considered the gold standard. But I think when we start to look at a multi-method data collection effort, you really start to be able to understand what's going on so much more deeply and robustly. And so I'm I I fully agree that sort of the integration of of multiple data sources is so valuable to to the research process. And I would add one more thing that uh, there's the the comment in what you just read about lived experiences or personal narratives. The other issue, and this gets to, I think, the bias in, in modeling is that we as researchers, depending on the data we're collecting and the communities that we're working with and the questions we're trying to answer, we may not always be the best suited to understand kind of really what we're seeing in the data. And so bringing communities into the research process is incredibly important. Um, and NORC is actually doing some work right now where we are working with what we call community boards. And those community boards are uh, members of communities that are experiencing certain types of health issues, or uh, they might be the focus of a particular policy, and we're trying to understand the impact of that policy on those communities. And what, what we want to do is make sure that we're actually understanding what's in the data correctly. And so working with community boards, they're helping to verify and validate the perception of those data. And so I think that really gets us to a place of not just being inclusive to say we're inclusive, uh, not just making sure that we're using an, a, a multi-mode approach to our research, but that we're actually getting good data and meaningful data to answer our questions correctly. So I think all of those perspectives of multi-mode and really bringing um, the communities that we're working with and that we aim to support and serve into the research process, it, it becomes so valuable and, and, and really vital to the success of the project, um, whatever that project may be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Or the second thing that I want to talk about, due to your involvement with social media as a tool by which you communicate through influencers and tool by which you uh, collect data, I wanted to, to get your perspective about the topic that's been in the news for a while now around mental health and the use of social media. So study after study says that American youth are in crisis, facing unprecedented mental health challenges that are burdening teen girls in particular. And among, among the most glaring data was that there was actually a recent C2C report that showed that almost 60% of U.S. girls reported persistent sadness and hopelessness. And that rates are up in boys too, but pre predominantly uh, girls are affected. What is your sense around all of that data the, uh, and the, the research that's been done around the relationship between mental health issues and social media use? Yeah, so I don't think that there's a question. There's a crisis in this country. And, and actually, it's not just in the U.S. This is something that we've seen come out in the data from other countries over the past couple of years that in terms of youth and, and mental health, there are lots of incredible people working on this topic and trying to figure out how do we address uh, uh, the issue of youth mental health. 
one of the places where I think there has been some focus has been on the role of social media uh, in terms of the heavy use of social media by youth and the connection of that use to mental health outcomes. It's an area that I'm very passionate about. I've actually done a little bit of work in this space over the last year or so, specifically focusing on the connection of social media and youth. And in talking with experts in the field, the main sort of takeaway or the headline is that the jury is sort of still out. There's data that sort of links engagement in social media with worsening mental health outcomes amongst youth. There's also data that suggests that it's less about the platform and more about what you go into social media with. So if you go in with certain types of, uh, with higher levels of anxiety or issues with depression, then those things can get exacerbated by the interactions that take place um, in social media. I think what all of this points to, and and especially in light of some of the recent conversations around Twitter limiting its uh, data access for researchers, TikTok making um, its data harder to access through its platform, or in some cases, uh, TikTok being even something that might be limited here in the US, more work is needed, right? And that's on a number of fronts. I think there's just not a ton out there in terms of what we know about this space and the interactions of youth in social media and um, the impacts on their mental health. There are platforms like TikTok where data access is hard. So making those data available for platforms where youth are heavy users is incredibly important. And then I think also just work in terms of providing supportive resources um, to youth, right? So just because some of the data suggests that Um, Maybe it's not the platform itself. It might be sort of a predisposition. It doesn't mean that we should look the other way or we shouldn't advocate for certain resources or supportive resources for for youth who are participating in these environments. I just, I want to elevate the concept and the function of social isolation as it relates to both of these things. And I think that also ties back to COVID. Um, So I think one consequence of COVID was social isolation of youth specifically, you know, having to uh, stay at home and not being able to connect with their peers. And in that way, um, we saw this in adults and, and also I think in youth, the, the ability to connect virtually right on some of these platforms and find communities that they wouldn't be able to engage with can actually be beneficial to mental health because it's improving that connection socially. But it can also go the other direction where you know, observing peers or friends on a platform where you're not physically present as a teen girl can really, you know, increase those feelings of social isolation and therefore risk for mental health. And so I think there is a intervening factor here of like, how do we build social cohesion and reduce social isolation broadly, but specifically for this group that might be really vulnerable to kind of more um, acute mental health needs as a result of that isolating force. Social media can both exacerbate it, but it can also for people in communities that are cut off or, um, you know, for an individual who is maybe living in a community that isn't culturally aligned with their own background or their own experiences, they can go find friends or people to connect with online. And that can actually be really beneficial. So not to minimize the negative impacts, but I think we need to take a look that looks at those contributing factors and the causal factors of the mental health problem, rather than just say, you know, it's a function of social media writ large. Right. I, I agree with that. And if I, if I summarize everything that we said, I would say that, and tell me, tell me if I'm thinking right about this, tech may not cause it, but certainly amplifies it. And it doesn't absolve the platforms from addressing it and providing resources or 
tools to deal with it. And we need more work to understand. Amelia and Lucy, thank you so, so, so much for this conversation. This was fascinating. And it was an element of, of research and work that I was not familiar with in public health and how data and AI pertains to it. So it was very instructive for me. I thank you. If people want to either use the data sets or learn more about NORC or get in touch with you, where can they find you? And the data. So the data are located um, on uh, NORC.org. Um, and if you just search for How Right Now, the How Right Now page will come up. And my work email is burkegarcia-amelia at NORC.org. And Lucy, do you want to share your contact information? Yes, sure. Uh, Rabinowitz-Lucy at NORC.org. Yeah, so please reach out if there are questions. And just, Gilad, thank you so much for having us on today. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>